Hey there, I'm Lucas Fitz. If you know me, you know two things to be true. I love a good pair of denim, and I'm always here for the stories. When I first got into the heritage goods movement and buying intentionally, I looked to American Field as an industry leader in connecting cool brands to cool consumers. There's nothing better than hearing the story behind how a big idea grew into a business. Now, we're bringing it online and inviting you to join in the conversation, whether you're watching or listening along from wherever you call home. I'll be hosting these fireside chats, intimate, personal looks at the inner workings of some of our favorite brands on our AF network. So, sit down, grab a whiskey or coffee or beer, and ride along as we shine the spotlight on real people and real stories. This is AF Fireside. Today's episode is presented by Jamestown, a global real estate investment and management company known for transforming spaces into innovation hubs and community centers. Learn more at jamestownlp.com. Hey, welcome back to AF Fireside. Uh, it's a Friday afternoon here. Not sure what time or whatever it is, wherever you are, but I'm stoked that it's Friday. My guest is stoked that it's Friday. Uh, we got Rob Ionelli. He is the founder of Norton Point and has his hands in many really cool brands and projects. Uh, excited to talk to him today and wrap up our mini series on sustainability with maybe the most sustainable of them all. Rob, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me. So I've heard, well, you told me, uh, we are somewhat local to one another, but you are in like the, the complete opposite kind of Massachusetts than I am out on, <laughs> out on the vineyard. I've never been out to Martha's Vineyard. Well, here's your open invite. So come on out. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. I'll take it. Are you there full time year round? Yeah. Um, What's that? As of, as of April of last year. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Was that a pandemic decision? Yeah, that was, uh, you know, we were living in Santa Monica. Um, okay. Very forward. different. And yeah, very different and came back thinking it would be like a two month hiatus and it quickly rapidly uh, <laughs> turned into a, a one year plus and then we just decided to stay. Nice. Nice. What's the winter like on an, you know, an island like that? Pretty sublime. Um, I've done a lot of weekends um, down here in the winter. My wife's uh, from the island and her parents cool. live here year round. So I got a flavor of that over the years, but um, you definitely want a wood stove or a fireplace. Um, you definitely don't want all of your wood chopped. <laughs> um, it's really just about staying busy, but I, I describe it almost like, like a coastal Vermont. If that ever existed, that's yeah. Martha's Vineyard in the winter. Okay. I think I like that. I think I yeah, like that a lot, nice. actually. Yeah. yeah. There's probably, so how many people are there year round? Um, a little bit more now because of COVID, but like give or take, there's about 30,000 people. Oh, okay. That's a lot. Um, That's a lot of people. And then it balloons to like 120, 150,000 in the summer months. Cool. Very cool. Is Martha's Vineyard, is that Jaws? Is that where Jaws oh, yeah. was? Okay. Yep. Is there like a big Jaws culture? Um, I would say so. Yeah. I mean, it was filmed in, nine, in the summer of 1974. Um, it launched in June uh, 1975. And, um, you know, there's that iconic bridge where, mm -hmm. you know, the kids are like playing around with the sunfish and the guy rolls over in the red you know, Robo and he's asking oh, yeah. if he help and the jaws comes and eats the guy's leg. And, um, so there's a bridge called, uh, it's called Memorial bridge, but everyone actually just calls it jaws bridge. So, and cool. that's what everyone jumps off of. Uh, it's like nice. a summer ritual. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's right on the, okay. That's on the, the checklist of things you have to do when you're out there. Pretty much. Yeah. It, it's very popular. Cool. Cool. I, I did not grow up a, a Cape kid. I grew up mm -hmm. a Mesquamacate, Rhode Island kid. Yeah. The beach. So I, I haven't, haven't quite jumped on the Cape Vineyard Vineyard life yet. I, what's not to like though? Um, 
Well, for a lot of people, it's like the traffic. Uh, well, uh, that was a rhetorical question. <laughs> but if there are things you don't like, I'm more than happy to hear about it. Yeah. Um, just less and less I, I don't like. Just yeah, But you have to dial it into your lifestyle. So Yeah, no, um, for sure. But yeah, it's a nice place to be, a nice place to raise a family. And um, people always want to visit. That's what, what Maybe not so much in the winter, but different crowd. Sure. sure. Gotcha. Well, while we're on the topic of ocean and paradise, sure. you have created a name for yourself uh, in the industry and in the world of sustainability for the work that you've done uh, for all around all things beachy and, and ocean based. I'm going to kind of just let you, sure. I, I just want to hear the story. Tell me what you're up to. Uh, yeah. So let's see. Back in 2016, um, I launched the world's first product made with recycled ocean plastics. Um, brands Norton Point, uh, which is namesakes for a barrier beach here on the island. That's one of my favorite places to, to kind of spend time. And really, um, my background was in injection molding. Uh, I had already been in the eyewear industry for a period of time. And I came about understanding more about ocean plastics. And I think it was over like several beers with a friend. I was like, you know what? If you find me the material, I'll make them, you know, because I have the resources overseas. And um, we did that, you know, so we, we brought the product to market through Kickstarter. We sourced the material from Haiti. Uh, we went down to Haiti to film the Kickstarter video. That was a, <laughs> that's like a whole nother uh, wild, wild adventure in itself. Um, but long story short, brought it to Kickstarter on World Oceans Day. So that was June 8th, 2016. So just about five years ago, almost to the date. And um, it went crazy. You know, we were fully funded in six days. So that was like thirty-seven and a half thousand dollars in six days. Went on to kind of double what we were seeking to raise, and that really triggered a few things. It definitely proved it proved that you know consumers care about the ocean and they're hungry to buy a product that kind of had an impact. And then secondly, we got a lot of insights uh, and interest from existing companies coming to our eyewear business, desperate for material, you know, raw material to make their products. And that's a whole other story. That's how I started my parent company, OceanWorks, but. Generally speaking, Norton Point uh, really set out to kind of um, pave the way. And our tagline was to see plastic differently and just to kind of inspire consumers, brands, and just the general populace that there is a, a way to kind of reuse uh, recycled plastics. And there is a second, third, or maybe fourth or fifth life for some of these materials that normally would be going into the ocean or, or in the environment. Um, so fast forward five years, you know, Norton Point is, is still in existence. Um, I took a bit of a a left turn with ocean works. Um, that's our B2B business. Uh, but you know, we still get orders every week for Norton point. Cause I think, you know, eyewear is a fun market and, and consumers are still hungry for, for products that have an impact. Um, and I think that's just going to keep growing. For sure. I love that. We've, we've talked to a lot of brand founders and, and creatives that have, or it's a, it's a pretty common narrative of like, I, there was a thing that I wanted to do. No one else was doing it. There was a, a hole in the market and, and I filled it. And it sounds like with ocean, that was, you did that with Norton point and now with ocean works. Well, now I'm going to create that solution in a manner that helps other people yeah, as well. You know, I really had, I mean, I had an inclination that there might be a B2B business in this space, but I didn't, mm -hmm. I was very surprised at the velocity to which um, the market was really seeking that. And, you know, we had to make a decision, like, do we want to build up over five years and build a pretty decent sized our business or did I want to jump at this opportunity, um, you know, for this materials platform. Uh, but thankfully we've been able to keep both running. Cool. Very cool. Can you give a, a very simplistic Wikipedia synopsis of what makes ocean plastic or, or plastic that's derived 
from ocean materials different than maybe a conventional plastic. I have I don't know anything about plastic. <laughs> yeah, it's really so. about like source and origin. Um, so like the bulk of the material that be considered ocean plastic is really ocean bound plastic. So it's material within 50 kilometers of the coastline predominantly in developing areas where there's just a lot of CPGs coming in with single use plastics. There's no waste management system. So there's no uh, waste recovery. It, it literally just, it gets purchased, it's on the ground. And then through the natural flow of water, it's gonna take it to the lowest point, which is sea level. Um, so the majority of the materials that you see in the market are ocean bound. There are some that are ocean plastic or like high seas. That would be material coming from like the ocean cleanup. But the real issue there is that it's very hard to get, it's very low quality, and it's very low capacity. Uh, so the bulk of what the consumer sees now is ocean bound. And, and the reason is it's you can get it, it's on the ground, it's imminently gonna go into the ocean or the environment already, uh, but it has an opportunity to be re reconfigured into a new um, recycled material. So what are some examples of ways that your you know your customers from ocean works are using those plastics is it could they just use it for anything um it's really across a lot of industries um like we just had a big product launch with electric bicycle which is owned by trek like a bicycle basket to uh dog toys with west paw that just launched cool to footwear like with sperry top cider um wow. so it's exciting and alarming um plastics are in almost everything whether it's your sofa, um, you know, or your lens cleaning case or your eyewear um, to the majority of your car. Um, you know, I think a lot of people still don't really know that polyester is PET. So like a, a Poland spring bottle, you know, broken down into a fiber, that's, that's polyester and that comes in lots of different deniers and filament weights. So we live in a world of plastic. Um, and I guess in turn, there's a pretty large audience of, of brands and, and manufacturers and retailers that want to tap into that because uh, historically they've been using new plastic, virgin plastic. Um, and now with this shift that's really accelerating with sustainability and, and ESG and carbon and, and so forth. Um, plastics is really sort of becoming the front and center um, sort of the frontier of, okay, well, the first thing we can do is kind of rethink our, our plastic footprint and how we utilize it. And I think that's why we work mostly with large companies, large Fortune 100, 500s, but we've also worked with really cool companies um, like Coco Floss. Um, they're a great example. They make a um, like recycled, uh, your floss is plastic. I don't know if anyone knew that. Um, but they're working, on, they're working on another product in sort of the dental hygiene space uh, with our materials. So it really varies. And that's what's exciting is that it's, um, it's a palette, you know, and a lot of creative brands um, come to us with interesting ideas. And, you know, we thankfully have a lot of different materials um, to satisfy that. Um, and again, it all kind of comes back to just making those sunglasses that are, are still coveted to this day. Um, so it's, it's exciting to see the breadth and, and sort of variety. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot more in, in the industries that are maybe a little more, um, a little more slower to change, but have a really big impact. Sure. Cool. That's uh, obviously very important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, kind of fast forwarding back to the jumping off point for the B2B business. Mm -hmm. uh, from the perspective of someone that was a brand owner already and mm -hmm. now looking to expand to communicate 
that same message in different different channels, different ways with other brand founders and other businesses. What considerations did you have to make before making that making that move to have the B two B parent company? Um, you know, I think in this industry, well, especially if you're like an entrepreneur or aspiring aspiring entrepreneur, um, it really comes down to like empathy. So like trying to put yourself in the shoes of, of your customer. And thankfully, like I had gone down that route building out Norton Point and I knew like where all these pain points were. And I was like, there has to be a better way there. So as we kind of roll that OceanWorks and like go to market strategy, it was really about like de-risking the proposition. Because um, for a lot of brands, whether you're small or large, it's really scary to sort of jump into sustainability. Um, and I knew that because when I did it, I, I didn't know any better. Um, but I made a lot of mistakes along the way that I knew that in order for this to scale, there'd have to be a way where those mistakes weren't uh, as prevalent, you know, for our future customers of OceanWorks. Sure. So it really came down to that, just kind of a lot of like design thinking on what, what are the real fears for, for using recycled ocean plastics and how can we create value that overcomes those? So do you feel like that thought process is applicable across all industries or is that kind of a specific, specific to um, sustainability in terms of the product end. I think it has a lot to do like sustainability is really new still. Um, you know, and you look at like capitalism historically, capitalism was really built on carbon. Um, and I think we're at this crossroads where we've realized like we got carbon pretty wrong. Um, and the shift that you're seeing, whether it's the green new deal or all this ESG stuff or what have you, um, or, you know, general motors all of a sudden is saying, well, all electric by 2035. I'm not sure if consumers are demanding that, or if these large corporates are starting to realize that they'd have to make a systemic change because uh, sure. their business models have been built on carbon and that's not going to last another hundred years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's a change and, and, and some industries change faster than others. You know, look at fashion, fashion switched over to recycled polyester aggressively. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Adidas had a lot to do with that. Um, and then now, you know, there's unify and reprieve, uh, for polyesters, there's a, a Connell for recycled nylons. Um, but then other industries are really slow, like automotive. I mean, to spec out an automotive part is like three to four years. And then, you know, you have to have ubiquity in material and process and performance. So I think it's a little cyclical, but generally the, the trend is that everyone's kind of moving their aircraft carriers towards this new direction. Sure. Uh, some are just moving faster than others. I like that analogy. You picked the the slowest moving <laughs> machine you could possibly find. I like that. That's cool. I'm going to use that. Cool. Well, I love talking science. I am not uh, a science-minded person. So just being a part of the conversation makes me feel yeah. really smart. So I appreciate that. Uh, I want to talk about about Rob, the entrepreneur, and, and kind of dig into your mind a little bit. Uh, you said something earlier. Uh, I don't want to misquote you. Something along the lines of jumping into opportunity or finding an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um and, and Justin, kind of hearing the snippet of the story there, it sounds like you, you have this ability to be at the right place at the right time or otherwise know how to create an opportunity where there maybe isn't one. Yeah. Um, how, how do you develop that skill? That feels like, a, like a, a lifeblood skill for an entrepreneur to have that if yeah. you're used to you know, uh, being told what to do every day or, or following a path, that's a hard skill to develop. Yeah, I think it really comes down to like risk, you know, like whether whether you're comfortable operating risk or not, or you grew up in an environment where risk was um, uh, was kind of normal. Um, you know, for me, like 
I've had a chance when, you know, I see an opportunity and I, I can quickly kind of visualize where that could go. I, I think that's almost like a sixth sense. I mean, I think some people have and some don't. And some people start companies very differently than I have and are, are equally, if not more, you know, successful. Um, you know, for me, it has a lot to do with, you know, can I get things off the ground without relying on many other people? That's always been sort of my, my go-to. Uh, how much of the sort of go-to launch can I do on my own? Um, with my sort of unique skill set and who I know and such, uh, and then pulling in the right people to kind of build it and scale it. Um, so that was like a new phenomenon in this space. So I, I knew nothing about plastics other than, you know, some background in injection molding. And I certainly didn't really understand sort of the nuances of sustainability at scale. I didn't go to, you know, university for that or anything. Um, but I think if you have like sort of like a voracious interest in learning quickly and absorbing a lot of information, you'd be surprised how much of a leg up you can get on competitors uh, or you can literally just like see the vision uh, and just kind of go after it. But you have to move very fast um, and also be willing to reevaluate. You know, Norton Point in 2016, I was like, I'm going to build the, the Warby Parker of recycled ocean plastic, you know. And But as I delve into it, I started to see some barriers and some um some obstacles at the same time some other opportunities and you have to be able to make those gut decisions along the way and and really kind of figure out like well what do i really want to build here like what's the outcome i'm seeking um do i want to build like a very successful small business that's doing you know a few several million dollars in revenue or do i want to build a monster and at my juncture i was you know 30 years old so i was like let's go for it um because I knew I wanted to take that risk. Uh, I guess that's kind of what it comes back to is uh, I'm very comfortable taking risks. And, you know, even my wife sometimes is like, holy shit, like this is getting out of control, um, especially when like they, they work. Um, but you have to be careful because you can get overconfident. So, right. um, yeah, risk is, you know, some people love it and some people don't want anything to do with it. So and I think the outcomes yeah. usually speak for themselves. Sure. I feel like there is, I mean, obviously there's, when you run a business, own a business, there's so many things going on and sometimes you have to, you got to just put your head down and do the thing. Yeah. Um, but having that kind of tunnel vision oh, and just, and just looking down, like that means that you're missing a lot of things that might be, might be passing by. Mm -hmm. Do you have kind of any, any experience or expertise in, in that department, how you can balance that duality there? Yeah, you know, tunnel vision is a real thing. Um, in my case, like it's been a huge tool, but you have to be able to kind of like pick your head up and reevaluate as you go and kind of to have that, I get like having a sense for like, like seeing pattern recognition and be like, well, this obstacle keeps coming up. I could like ram my head against it for like another two years, or I could kind of take a step back and reevaluate. That kind of happened with Norton Point in the transition with OceanWorks. And this happened in, in other businesses I've, I've founded. But I think it's important to kind of keep your head up and, and make sure that you're still maintaining a course that uh, holds water, you know, that, that still makes sense. It's defensible. Um, and it's just like, you know, whenever you're digging into a project, you kind of start removing the layers. You know, people always joke about like, oh, it's like, you know, peeling back an onion and you're going to find all this other issues along the way. I find those issues to be the opportunity. And that's really, that's why OceanWorks came about is because I did take the risk to go into recycled ocean plastic eyewear. But then that eventually showed me that there was all these other companies that were like 
desperate to figure this out. And, and that, I never would have known that if I didn't, um, I guess, have this tunnel vision to build out, you know, the hour yeah. business. Um, but I took a huge risk, you know, going back to my investors and saying, I want to do this like B2B marketplace. And they were like, well, I invested in our business. So what the, what the hell are we talking about here? You know? Right. So. Yeah. It's an interesting kind of duality of having one year on the ground, one year to the sky. I feel like yeah. if, if you hadn't had a finger on a, on a greater pulse, could you have missed the opportunity? hundred percent. With the B2B. Yeah. Yep. Had no you really, problem. you know, gone full speed with, with the eyewear brand. Yeah. And like, I had to really fight for it. Um, cause it was a huge deviation and it was, it was really unproven. Like five years ago, this concept of like, Oh, people are going to buy like bulk tonnage recycled plastics on the internet. Like, no, I, I'd like my investment money back. <laughs> I mean, people buy everything on the internet. Yeah. You know, in, in that capacity, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, no risk, no reward, but there's definitely a lot of sleepless nights and months and maybe years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's not well, a pretty and, and now that you have a two month old, that's not changing anytime soon. No, not at all. <laughs> um, you know, but it, it definitely keeps you on your toes. And sure. um, I don't know, I guess in this sense, I, for me, having a kid and, and, and starting companies, it's the same thing. Uh, you're problem solving 24 yeah. seven. Um, and, you know, eventually you get pretty good at it. Here's hoping, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm an optimist by design. Love that. Love that. Um, so aside from optimism, which I think is a, a great trait to pass on, any tips for budding entrepreneurs out in, in cyberspace that are listening here? Yeah. Um, just roll up your sleeves and do it. And there is no perfect business plan. Um, there's really no perfect co-founder. Uh, there's, there's no perfection in this industry. There's just persistence. Um, I really believe that, you know, a lot of my, my success is just being brutally persistent. Like I've gotten domains from people because I email them every three weeks with the nicest email I can send, but I'll do that for three years. Like, sure. and eventually they just, they're like, okay, I'll sell it to you. Um, yeah, that's just one example, but I, I think, um, you know, but you can't just be persistent and expect it all to fold in, in place. You know, I think I've seen some entrepreneurs that are, um, really stricken by that because they think, well, if I just work a hundred times harder, it's all just going to fall into place, but they're not picking up the cues along the way and, and the patterns and, and sort of reevaluating along that journey. So I guess I say that with caution, you know, I think mm -hmm. persistence with, um, uh, very careful planning and, and, and very careful, um, perspectives you know everyone wants to give you advice but seldom wants to be held accountable for it so sure. you have to have a voice inside that's really driving what you want to build and, and who you want to become man i'm gonna let you go deal with that <laughs> where's the best place to keep in touch who where can consumers find you um yeah i'm pretty active on linkedin you know so if anyone wants to say hi on linkedin i'm very friendly there um i i've built many businesses on linkedin so don't be shy you can send me a message or a request and i'll, I'll field it um, other than that, you can email me at rob at nortonpoint.com uh, or rob at oceanworks.co. Love it. Cool, man. Well, we'll catch up again soon. Maybe we'll see you oh, on the vineyard one of these days. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right, man. Have a wonderful weekend. Appreciate Same it. Same to you. I'm Lucas Fitz, and this is AF Fireside. To learn more about all the brands featured on the podcast, check out fireside.shopaf.co. And don't forget to subscribe to us on your streaming platform of choice. Thanks for listening.
Today's episode is presented by Jamestown, a global real estate investment and management company known for transforming spaces into innovation hubs and community centers. Learn more at jamestownlp.com.